Hey friends, this is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, SheCast, episode 39. And so I am on with Selena Alonzo, and we met uh, kind of in, randomly, almost, uh, here at the University of Michigan. And so she is a, are you a 2L or a 1L? So I started in the summer, okay. so I'm in like my third semester of law school. Okay, awesome. So she is here at the law school at the University of Michigan, which is a pretty big deal. And so we got to talking, and I was like, I need to have her on this podcast because she has such great insight, and I just was really inspired after speaking with her and really loved hearing more about her story and what she wants to do with her law degree. So I am going to turn it over and Selena, I'm so glad that you agreed to come on the podcast. So welcome. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was great talking last week. So I'm excited to talk more. Absolutely. So tell everyone who you are, you know, kind of how you got to U of M law school and we'll go from there. Yeah. So, um, I'm Selena and so I was born and raised in Austin, Texas, and I've always wanted to, I don't know, ever since I was little, my parents always ingrained in me that I will be going to college and it'll be a school in New England. So from there, I went to Amherst College for undergrad. And it was during that time that I became interested in social justice issues and especially the criminal justice system. So I decided to apply to law school. Um, and I applied to University of Michigan as well as the other top law schools, but I always felt you know, at home, and I felt I would be happiest at Michigan. So I'm thrilled to be here now, and it's been a great experience so far. That's awesome. Yeah, that's so cool. I love that you said that your family ingrained in you this, uh, that you were going to go to law school, or excuse me, college. And because so many students, I would say, or people don't necessarily have that experience. And so when I hear people say things like, you should just pull yourself up from the bootstraps, it aggravates me to no end. Because if someone doesn't have boots, let alone bootstraps, like, how does that even materialize? So if someone's family wasn't encouraging them to go to school, it's not impossible it just looks different than someone who has been encouraged, right, to go to school. And so, right. And so, what um, organizations are you uh, are you a part of? So, I am a part of. I was. I'm the president, and I helped found the first generation law students here at University of Michigan Law. I work with the University of Michigan Law School Student Rights Project. Um, I organized a alternative spring break trip to the California Pellet Project um, through University of Michigan Law. I volunteer with Street Law. Sorry, I'm just listing all these names, but no, it's all good. Um, I volunteer with Ground Cover News here in Ann Arbor, and I'm also a mentor through uh, a graduate student mentoring program. That's awesome. So, how did you decide to found the? first-generation law students, student organization? Yeah, so when I was in college at Amherst, I struggled so much. Um, Sometimes I'm honestly amazed that I'm at Michigan, but it was just hard to get a grasp on what professors 
wanted out of you. Um, you know, that you were supposed to go to office hours. It was hard to know the resources that the school had available for you, et cetera. And so we had a first-gen group at Amherst, but it didn't really do a whole lot. Um, it was just starting. So when I came to Michigan, I wanted to, you know, start this as soon as I could um, and kind of help because law school, although we've all been to undergrad, is completely different. And I want to just... I wanted to start this group to provide support for first-gen law students, especially people who are the first in their family to graduate college so that they don't have to struggle as much as some of us who didn't have the support system had to struggle or will struggle. Sure. So did your family, were you the first person to go to college in your family? I was, yes. Okay. Yeah. And so that's even more heartwarming to me that your parents made sure that you knew that that was not only a possibility, but it was going to be a reality yeah. uh, because that's not necessarily the case for some students or some people. And it was not the case for my family. For example, my, both my parents have PhDs. My mom went back in her fifties to get her PhD, which is pretty it's amazing. amazing and badass. If I don't, you know, if I, <laughs> say that um and at the same time you know like we always took it for granted like everyone was going to go to college and three out of five of us finished our bachelor's and have um either graduate degrees like master's or my brother also went to U of M law school um several years before you did on a full ride scholarship so that was just kind of what you did. Like being from Ann Arbor, everyone went to school, you know, there weren't, at least the people that I was spending time with, they weren't not going to school, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas in other parts of the country and other countries in general, that's not necessarily the case. And so that's one of the reasons that I had you come on was because I love to provide a space to give a voice, you know, to someone that has an experience, especially an experience that's different than my own, so that people can hear your story directly from your, your mouth to kind of put together the pieces like, oh, because I think conceptually people kind of recognize life isn't always fair, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, people don't act like they respect or appreciate or understand that people do lead different lives. And so opportunities that may be afforded to one person are often not afforded to another person and largely through no fault of their own, just, you know, circumstances. So, so what is, uh, so what are the kind of support or what are the kinds of things that you all do to support one another in the first gen law school uh, org? So, A lot of our support is going right now towards making sure people are prepared for interviews. And some people want to go into big law, some people want to go into public interest, but a lot of first-generation law students don't even really know what big law means or don't know how the interview process is going to work. Um, There's this antidote. So the law school puts on informational panels. However, one of our members asked a question, you know, I don't know how to tie a tie. And he asked that in front of the entire student body. And of course people started laughing because they assume everyone knows how to do that, et cetera. But what we're trying to do is provide this space where everyone comes from roughly the same background, 
And so they're not going to judge you if you ask what maybe deems stupid questions um, other people. And we also just want people to know who the other first-generation students are because we're a very – the admissions office loves to advertise that they have first-gen students, but they don't really connect us in any way. And so we want to provide a group so that people can connect and talk about their stories and learn from older students, et cetera. Awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, and that, it just goes to what I was saying, that, like, someone may not know how to tie a tie, and that is not reflective of their intelligence. It's just a reflective of their experience, right? Exactly. So, you know, when people don't have the information, at least he's asking, you know? (laughs) There are plenty of people who don't have the information and are not asking either whether it's because of shame or not wanting to look stupid in front of their peers or their colleagues or something else, um, you know, that is important to have those safe spaces where you can process and you can be uh, together with people that have similar experiences so that you bolster and provide support and resources for one another. What is the composition of students that are in that student organization? Are they largely American students, or do they often come from other places? Um, It's actually largely American, um, but also largely minorities, which isn't a whole lot at Michigan Law, but, you know. Right. There is that, too. Absolutely. How'd you get involved with street law? So... I came into law school knowing I wanted to be a public defender, and um, that's largely because of my background and the fact that a lot of my extended family has been incarcerated at some point in their life, and so I know what it's like, or I don't know what it's like, but I know what it's like to have family who are locked up, and I know the collateral consequences of that, et cetera. And so I wanted to make sure that I always maintained my connection to people who are incarcerated, people like my family members, so that I never lose perspective and never lose sight of what I, why I want to be a public defender. So I go in and um, I go to the juvenile detention center and I go to Parnall um, prison and I just teach kind of know your rights type sessions to the people there. And it's been wonderful. That's awesome. That is so cool. Yeah, the incarceration rate, too, I mean, you know, right? Yeah. Amongst um, black people, brown people, um, is exponentially higher than it is in white people. So percentage-wise, it's higher, even though those groups do not represent percentage-wise, in terms of the entire community. So if you say that the entire community, out of all of the people in the U.S., let's say, for example, and I don't have specific numbers, so please don't email me about this because I'm already telling you that I don't have specific numbers. So let's say out of the population, the general population, 6%, 8% are African-American, and let's say the same for Latinx people, right? Mm -hmm. 
if you look at who's incarcerated, the numbers increase, the percentages increase. So it means that more people from these people groups or these along these racial lines, if you will, are being incarcerated and oftentimes not the same rate. So definitely not the same rate as white people, but right. even for what they're doing. So if you look at, I, I remember I was at uh, the primary. So in February, 2016, not prime. We didn't, we don't do primaries in Nevada. We do caucuses. So I was at the caucus. And so I was kind of vacillating. I, I just didn't have enough information about either of the two Democratic candidates at the time. And so I asked the Bernie person, there was a young man, probably in his early 20s, who was on fire, was feeling the burn, right? So I asked him why he liked Bernie so much, and he told me. And then I asked a young woman who was, so these were both the respective kind of caucus leaders, if you will. Yeah. I asked the young woman why she liked Hillary. And she told me why she didn't like Bernie. And I said, that is not the question that I'm asking you. I don't need to know about Bernie from you because I've already heard about Bernie from someone who actually likes Bernie. So what I would like to know from you is why you like Hillary. And again, she didn't answer the question. So then she asked me what issues were important to me. And I said, so many to name. But if I had to select maybe top three, I have a problem with black men that are unarmed dying in the middle of the roadway mm -hmm. um, at the hand of largely police officers. I have a problem with black and brown bodies living in incarcerated states for not good reason. And then she wanted to debate me on that. I said, let's take, for example, um, you know, we tried, we had this war on, on drugs in the 80s, the 70s and 80s, and we thought we could incarcerate our way into or out of that problem. And it turns out that was not helpful. And so thankfully, um, President Obama released a lot of people that had old drug records or drug, you know, uh, convictions for really low, um, nonviolent offenses. Mm -hmm. And so when you put that up to white people that are also caught with pot, like whether it's like small amounts, not definitely not dealing it, um, the numbers are different, right? Right. You probably know this more than I do because you are doing this work. You've rolled up your sleeves and you're doing this work. So what are your thoughts um, in addition to what I've kind of said? Because what she, what was interesting to me is this woman wanted to debate the facts. I said, honey, I'm not, I, I didn't make this up. <laughs> These are well-documented facts that people of color tend to be incarcerated at higher rates than non-people of color. Yeah. Right. So what, um, what kind of, do you add, what would you add to the mix or the conversation? Yeah, so it's one in three black men and then one in six Latino men will be incarcerated at some point in their life. 
And I was at the Brian Stevenson talk and he mentioned that fact. And I think over three fourths of the audience gasped. And that was just shocking to me that you don't already know that. Like if you're at a Brian Stevenson talk, it would make sense that you would educate yourself about mass incarceration and care about these issues. Sure. But I just wish there was a higher level of consciousness about just how bad it is. And people, people don't, they seem to care about it, but they don't educate themselves on the severity of it. And so I wish there was more of that. And in addition, I also think there's a problem with the way we sentence and the mandatory minimums, three strikes rule, et cetera. Um, a lot of that is left to the discretion of the prosecutor and whatever charge they decide to give to the defendant will severely impact what the sentencing judge will and what the sentence that the judge will impose on the defendant. And so the discretion is taken away from the judge and given to the prosecutor. And that's just complicated by the fact that the prosecutor is elected usually on a platform of being tough on crime. And so naturally there's going to be, if that continues to be the way we sentence people even more, you know, sentencing severe sentences for minor offenses, et cetera. And then when you think the criminal justice system is no longer a system of trials, it's a system of pleas. And I think 99% or in the nineties um, plea out, which means they don't get a trial. They just accept the deal that the prosecutor offers them and they go to jail. And the way I just, I just think that's wrong as well. And that's because the public defense system is so desperately understaffed that defenders have no choice but to accept pleas because they simply can't handle the caseload. Like in Miami, I think the average public defender has 400 cases at a time. And that is just ridiculous to me. Yeah. So I mean, there's so many problems that largely go to, I mean, legislative action, but also lack of funding and lack of understanding of the systematic problems that lead to, you know, the mass incarceration of black and brown people. Yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was just agreeing with you, sadly. And I just, I did vote for Hillary because, I mean, in the general election, because mm -hmm. obviously, but I do, I just, I want a minority candidate. I want someone who truly understands different socioeconomic backgrounds, which is not to say Obama doesn't or didn't, but I mean, there's a lot there that we could go into, but sure. I just, I think until that kind of candidate runs and until that kind of candidate is elected, which undoubtedly is a far way away, I really don't see a whole lot changing on the executive level. However, I was just reading an article about state level action and a lot of prosecutors are now being elected who aren't running on the tough on crime gambit. They're running their former defense attorneys. Um, they want to reduce, you know, mass incarceration, reduce sentencing. And I think that was really hopeful for me to read because real change does occur at the state level and not necessarily at the federal level. Totally. Yeah, it's so sad to me to think about how people can
not understand that these are human beings. And so are there monsters amongst us? Yes. And I know of a few that <laughs> are really doing some damage and people are turning a blind eye to it, you know? Yeah. Um, and they will point out that this black man that's unarmed is really the monster, you know? Um, and that goes back to racism that still exists, but what both covert and overt, you know, the macroaggressions and the microaggressions. Um, have you seen the movie Crash? It's kind of an older movie. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. So I watched it several weeks ago and what was really interesting to me is that it just kind of, everyone's connected, but they don't realize they're all connected yet. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of prejudices, you know, and stereotypes that exist. And so I was talking to my brothers last week and I finally was like, you know what, I'm done talking about this because I was telling them that I believe a, at the minimum, Jimmy Kimmel is, the maximum is that he's racist straight up. The yeah. minimum is that he's very prejudiced and very ignorant. And ignorant simply means unaware, uneducated about, has unfamiliarity with, has lack of experience with. These are, that's what it means to be ignorant about some serious issues, you know? And when people, you know, so there were stereotypes around the black men that were in the film, some of the black men that were in the film because I don't want to tell too much in case anyone wants to go see it or wants to see it. So it's old. So you would find it on demand on your TV or Redbox, <laughs> um, maybe Netflix. But then there were stereotypes around the Latino guy. And it was just like, he's a gang, gang banger. Maybe he's not from this country, you know, those type of things. And so what I say to that is like when we talk like that and we tell people, you know, so this is, these are the microaggressions, like, oh, it's a joke and you're being too sensitive. You need to thicken your skin. We are normalizing yep. this kind of talk so that it seems like black and brown men belong in it. They ought to be incarcerated because they are a threat or a menace to society. So when we say stuff, right it has an impact. And when we remember that people are people and that they have hopes and dreams, and even if they don't aren't aware of those hopes and dreams, they need to be cultivated and people need to come alongside them. Um, mm -hmm. This idea of us like self-made people is erroneous and false and nefarious at worst at its worst, because it implies that any one person has been able to make themselves as amazing as they are. And that's just not true. You know, um, no. there is like the African adage that it takes a village, you know, and I believe that it takes a village, uh, to do many things, you know, to really connect with community and to be our best selves. And when we have so many black and, um, brown men, 
that are incarcerated. So we're only speaking of men and we're definitely using gendered language right now because that is what I see, you know, this kind of pipeline from school or the foster care system to prison. So people almost don't even have a chance to right. live a life, right? And to contribute to society. Um, and then we say that, well, now I forget where it is. You may know better than me in the South. Did you know that they're trying to pass a law if it hasn't already passed a bill where if you resist arrest, it's considered a hate crime against police officers and that's a federal offense. And so it's a felony. I did not know that. That yeah. is, it's probably in Texas. So, and, and probably in Florida too. So no offense to those states, but y'all got to get it together for real. <laughs> um, a lot of stuff happens in those two states that is just unconscionable. Um, so with that said, you know, even if you are resisting arrest for good reason, because it's a false arrest or an unlawful arrest, that is a felony. So if you've had any other problem and it falls under this three strikes that Selena, you mentioned, mm -hmm. you're going to have be in a world of hurting you know, to try to get yourself out of that jam, even if it's not your fault, even if they're arrest, you're, they're arresting the, the wrong person. Right. Right. <laughs> so this goes back to this like cycle that can people break out of it? I do believe they can, but it goes to what you were saying about legislation changing and the people writing laws being different and more representative of people like actual people. I just, I truly wish in law school, it was a requirement to volunteer at a prison because these people have stories. There are reasons that they did what they did totally and I'm not justifying it, but at least when you talk to them as people and don't just hear these stories through the media, you can kind of understand it more and develop some kind of empathy. Yeah, for sure. I, I listened to, so many podcasts and one of my favorites is undisclosed and so this last season well the first season that they did undisclosed i'm so behind i guess they have two two new seasons um besides the first one that i listened to they one of the episodes they were in marion correctional marion rehabilitation correctional facility in mm -hmm. ohio and it is one of the only places that uh, still has the word rehabilitation in their name, which I think is interesting because um, they're all correctional facilities, but there isn't any rehab. It's almost as if people are supposed to just go there to die, right? Yep. And normally what they do is... Yeah, it's the, so it's part of the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction. They have like this TV and when you, if you watch any sort of crime shows, you'll see like, and they show people in prison, um, even Orange is the New Black uh, on Netflix, they have a TV room. Yeah. So usually prisoners are fighting over what to watch and it's usually like garbage, you know, nothing yeah. worthwhile. And so they actually have two TVs. So they have one where they beam in TED Talks and podcasts. And so they listened to Serial, the podcast, 
and mm-hmm. they listen to Undisclosed. And I remember weeping during the episode with the gentleman from Marion uh, Correctional uh, Rehabilitation Correctional Facility because, to your point and my point about people that are incarcerated being human beings, yeah, they sounded just like they could just pull up a chair and talk with you and I. They sounded no different. They didn't sound in quotes ghetto. They didn't sound in quotes hood. They didn't sound anything like what the stereotype is. What they sounded were like men who actually had compassion and empathy, actually had some remorse for what they had done. Uh, But more than that, were really intellectually sound, meaning they were putting together sentences and you just would never have guessed that that's what you were listening to and that it wasn't a grad school like a discussion or a focus group or anything that we like even a hap- you know talking with your friends at happy hour yeah and it was so astounding to me and I was just the tears just couldn't wouldn't stop falling because I was just like these are human beings and we forget oftentimes they are forgotten and I'm not condoning breaking laws and I say that very generally because there is always a story, um, especially the ones that are violent. Like I'm not condoning that because there's always a pain on, you know, there's always a victim or a survivor. So I'm not, and then the family gets, you know, crime touches everyone. Yeah. Uh, What I am saying is that they are human beings and they are not just prisoners. Right. And so, after hearing that, I started to try. I started to change my language and say "incarcerated people," um, because that's what they are. They happen to be incarcerated. Ultimately, they're people, and it was an eye opener for myself. And I think that I'm pretty open and relatively open minded and willing to learn and grow. And yes. I still was, you know, pleasantly surprised. But it was still a surprise for me, you know. Right. Yeah, I also just want to make a plug. If anyone is in undergrad and have a lot of undergrads now have these classes that um, go inside prisons, they're called Inside Out or Learning Behind Bars or something like that. And half of the class are undergrad students and half of the class are um, incarcerated people. And you just, I would just, that was the best experience of my time at Amherst College. So I would really encourage you to do that if you have the opportunity and it might just change your mind, perhaps change your mind about what you want to do or just change your perception. So that's awesome. Yeah. So definitely. And Selena will make sure that I have, you know, some of this information so that I have it for you all when this episode is live in the show notes. Um, But educate yourself. So ignorance is not the worst thing it's not the end of the road it really is just the beginning you know you can be at a crossroads and determine okay from today on from this moment on I am going to consider more things you know before I'm sharing my opinions or I'm going to be open more or I'm going more open or I'm going to read more on these different topics right Uh, Episode 36, I believe it is, it's an episode on restorative justice. So that will 
be live before this episode airs so you can listen to those two in relation you know and a lot of these topics touch on each other um Mm -hmm. there was a previous episode I did last year where there is a young woman she also teaches yoga I teach yoga and so she teaches yoga to incarcerated people men in particular um who have been convicted of sexual assault and other violent crimes And she herself is a survivor of sexual assault. And so I thought that was so interesting that she was able to have the bandwidth and the ability to, um, and the compassion to hear their stories and to share her own story in that arena. So when we get down to it, one of the reasons that I started this podcast, like I mentioned at the top of the hour, is that we are all people and we all have stories. You know, and so, Selena, I'm so glad that you agreed to come on to share some of your story, and I look forward to you graduating from the University of Michigan Law School and passing the bar um, in at least one state, if not more, um, so that you can be that advocate for people that often have their voices taken from them um, and don't even know it that's the saddest part about this is that a lot of times because people are caught in the system doing their very best to you know make good on the wrong that they've done sometimes shortchange themselves without even realizing it and a lot of public defenders are very overloaded with Mm -hmm. work and so it's very hard for one person I mean unless you have money right so that's a whole nother episode You may be stuck with someone who, like you mentioned, has 400 cases or more, um, and they don't have the opportunity to focus on just your case. You know, you're not their only client and you're not paying. So there's that. So thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. I'm really. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I think you'll have my email. So if anyone wants to talk about law school, just feel free to reach out. Absolutely. Yeah. So I will include that a way to uh, connect with Selena in the, um, in the show notes as per usual. So I am going to read a couple stories. So one is a three-parter and then just a, another, um, I think I'll just do the three-parter. So right now they're in Santiago, Chile. Uh, This is Humans of New York. So it looks like a guy, and it says, In every sense, she was the perfect mom. She always tried to encourage me when I was younger. I was really shy, so she always worried about me being alone. She would ask things like, Have you met anyone at school? Or does anyone like the same things you do? She always knew when something was wrong. I never had to tell her anything, but Dad was the opposite. He ignored me. He never did anything wrong. He wasn't an alcoholic. He wasn't violent. He was just nothing, like a chair or a piece of furniture. His only idea of fatherhood was going to work. He never reacted to anything in my life, not the good things or the bad things. He didn't react to me staying out late. He didn't react when I experimented with drugs and alcohol. I made my mom very sad by trying to get my dad's attention. A few years ago, I got hit by a car. When I woke up from my coma, I called home to tell my parents what happened. My father answered the phone. 
I told him everything. All he said was, your mother asleep, is asleep right now. You can call her tomorrow. That hurt me worse than being hit by the car. Uh, right? Totally. So then this is the second part of it. One day I found a box of old love letters that my dad had written to my mom. They were romantic letters. They said nice things. I was surprised because I'd never seen him say those things. All of that had disappeared before I was born. My father had never told me anything about himself. Everything I knew about him I learned from my mom. She told me that the romance had been an act. She told me that she later realized he was a very cold man. But mom always told me that we shouldn't blame him. She said he had a very rough childhood. His father abandoned the family when he was very young. His mother married another man and sent him to live with an uncle. She raised an entirely new family and left my father behind. He had a very lonely childhood, so my mother always told me, you must not blame your father. She told me that always, especially after she got sick. The doctors discovered a tumor on my mom's spine in 2007. She spent four years being really sick. First, she couldn't walk. Then she couldn't move her arms or her hands. Then when she died, she could only move her head. My father took care of her. I don't think there was emotion of, involved. I think he was just concerned about doing the correct thing. He'd openly say, I hate this. I hate this. Is, I hate this so much. But he did it. Mom died three years ago. When she realized she didn't have much time, she really encouraged me to get closer to my siblings. She also encouraged me to travel. She'd say, go explore. Forget about me. You're different. I want you to find people like you. She was always so worried about me being alone, and sometimes I do feel alone now that she's gone. I don't know who to call when I accomplish something. I miss her so much, but I always try to be like her. My whole life, I've tried to be like her. I can be shy. I can isolate myself. Sometimes I remind myself of my father, but I've always tried to be my mother. That was a... I don't know how I feel about that story. Me neither. Right? But it's a good one because it's someone's story. So It just reminds me how lucky I am to have my parents who both worked two jobs so that I only had to ever worry about school. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, when we look at stories, it humanizes, and then there's always a comparison, but it, I don't think it's always a bad comparison, just like kind of a going back, like a taking stock or an inventory, right? Of like, right. I really have a lot to be grateful. Um, or I have a life for which I'm very grateful. And so <clears throat> it's just a reminder, like, oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah. So I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I'm in that place in me, there is only one of us. So friends, thanks so much. Remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. Leave me a, re a review. I always get, I stumble on that. Leave me a review um, and let me know if there is a topic that you want to discuss. Plenty of new interviews coming your way. Thanks, as always, for the love and support. I so appreciate it. It's something for which I'm very grateful. Until we see each other again, have a gratitude-filled day. My name is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie. Namaste.